Welcome to episode 64 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. I'm obviously the culture editor of Country and Townhouse because today's guest, Dylan Jones, never gave me a job. <laughs> he did, uh, he gave me a column, but he never paid me for it. And uh, it gradually ran out of energy and enthusiasm. I invited you to lots and lots of parties, Owen, <laughs> to which uh, you came. We don't want to hear from you, Dylan, until we've finished our introduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, sorry. I've now got to slightly gallingly spend the next five minutes talking about how extraordinary and remarkable you are. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, it says here, a remarkable polymath who has there been there, done that and seen it all. Dylan Jones was, as everyone knows, the editor of GQ for over decades. In fact, by my count, almost three decades. He massively upped the magazine's game. Are you sure you didn't write this, Dylan? Game by <laughs> really major writers from Tom Wolfe to Will Self and A.A. Gill. He even hired Boris Johnson as the motoring correspondent. So he's responsible, <laughs> folks. He was famous for being the first editor to feature David Cameron on a magazine cover. He became GQ's editor in 1999, literally last century. He's had 34 awards. He's won the British Society of Magazine Editors Men's Editor of the Year Award <sighs> an astonishing six times. He won the Mark Boxer Award for Lifetime Achievement in 2012. That was 10 years ago. He's got an OBE and he started Men's Fashion Week. <laughs> yes, but that's not nearly all. Dylan went to Chelsea Art School and St Martin's to study graphic design, film and photography. He became editor of both ID Magazine and Arena. He's a prolific columnist and he's written numerous books about everyone from Jim Morrison, Paul Smith and David Bowie. He has two more in the pipeline, about which more later. He's a highly entertaining and opinionated TV presenter, has another series on the go. He's also curating a show of photographs by the Society Photographer Dave Bennett and working on a jukebox musical. I could go on and on and on, but he is, in short, a phenomenal cultural force and we couldn't be more thrilled to have him on this podcast. Good morning, Dylan. Well, good morning. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think I'd just like to sit here and listen uh, to Ed talk about how wonderful I am for the next 25 minutes. I that think for me, <laughs> I could probably, I could probably do that. <laughs> no, but it's anyway, very nice to be here. Very nice to be some here. Thank you for great asking. books. Let's. Talk, I mean, we'll talk about all your books. We'll talk about the slightly embarrassing one about Cameron and the other more respectable ones like <laughs> David Bowie. But you've got one, obviously, on my hero. In fact, we can link Cameron to this. We've got one on Paul Weller. So I am a child of the eighties. I went to the final Jam concert at Wembley Arena. I think I saw Paul Weller wandering down the street, uh, Chilton Street, the other day. He's obviously my complete hero. Tell us about your book on Paul Weller, which is it's a long overdue book on a pop icon. Uh, well, I've worked with Paul on various projects over the last few years. We've done a number of podcasts together, uh, done various projects, various interviews. So what we have done um, is a book that is very, very similar, I suppose, to the book that McCartney did with Paul Mundoon that come out that 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 came out before Christmas, and that will be out sometime uh, in the spring. Like Ed, I love the eighties. I was so excited. Your TV show on the eighties, I loved it because a lot of it was about the videos. Of course, that I was making pop videos then, so it was so much fun seeing that series. And you've got another one coming up, haven't you? On the nineties, I've got a big book on the nineties which is coming out 
in the autumn, which is, it's an oral biography of the decade. So it's not just Britpop, although all of those guys are in it, um, but it's politics. I've spoken to everyone from Major to, to Blair to Alistair and all points in between. It's food, it's music, it's media, it's drugs, it's sport and a lot of art in there too. That comes out in October and we're in the process of filming that at the moment. I, I've recently embarked upon a, uh, a fascinating and perhaps foolhardy uh, strand to my career, which is um, trying to do television programmes. And what I've learned in a very short period of time is that people love to have meetings. So I spend most of my week, uh, week having, having meetings with prospective and potential production partners. It's sort of like uh, air traffic control, just waiting for these planes to land. Just on music for a minute, um, rather than looking back, who are the great voices of now? Well, I think things have changed so much that it's possible to become incredibly successful and incredibly popular without having that sort of army of um, support around you in terms of your visual representation, your publicity, what you say in interviews, et cetera, et cetera. And because you don't have the visual iconography associated with music quite so strongly as you did when there was um, music papers and record sleeves etc etc and videos it's become a far more diffuse career actually Uh, and so there are lots of people making fantastic music at the moment perhaps more people making more fantastic music than has ever happened before. But in terms of the personalities, they're they're very, very few, because if you look at the number of very famous, very interesting people who are making music at the moment, pop stars, rock stars, rap stars, media stars, whatever you call them, they're a very, very small number. Uh, And they tend, um, a lot of them tend to go, come and go quite quickly. You cast your mind back to the 60s, 70s and 80s and, and any time that any pop star said anything about the popular culture or politics um, uh, there was there was a lot of attention paid to it. These days that doesn't happen so much. So look, I do want to look back and you've covered the whole gamut. So you've done Jim Morrison which basically covers the 60s. You've done Bowie and you're doing Paul Weller who for me is the kind of Bowie of the 80s who could do no wrong for me and define my teenage years you know kind of riffing off what you've just said how music has changed because you're right in the 60s 70s and 80s and I think 90s when you became the editor of GQ and we had Cool Britannia and Oasis and Patsy Kensit and everything uh how you know the, the domination of pop music in each of those decades and how it sort of changed and morphed I I hate loathe and despise those people who say that um, pop music was better in 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 my time, uh, whatever that my time was. However, however, <laughs> I do actually think there is a narrative arc to all this, and I think that if you think, if you consider, or you accept that popular music in the way that we understand it started in the early to mid fifties, uh, we're sort of reaching the end of that. I think. You can look at the way that the 60s has been written about and, 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 and filmed and documented so often 
that you think that that our appetite has been sort of it's over that that, that our enthusiasm is is has been exhausted but i don't think that's true and i think that's true for all of the the three or four decades that followed the 60s that our fascination for that extraordinary period of of pop culture which started in the early 50s that is something which i think we're all immersed in now and also i think this is it's kept alive by the fact that media now is completely flat everything's flat if you want to access anything from any any period in time all you have to do is 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 punch your your telephone uh, or open your laptop or your desktop or your ipad or whatever form of electronic communication you're using i think it's a terrible thing because in a way there, that that's had an effect on how people learn because a lot of people say and um, brazenly admit that they don't need to, 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 to learn all this stuff, whether it's about culture or politics or travel or what have you, because if they need to know, they can find out. Um, so that whole idea of curation and exploration and curiosity has somehow evaporated, which I think is very sad. And what was Bowie like? Uh, he was great. He was, uh, he was one of these people that on the one hand, was interested as as well as interesting and went out of his way to charm you and i think that on the one hand he had a, he had a genuine curiosity and he would ask everybody he met what was going on whether you were a makeup artist or a journalist or a politician or perhaps not a politician um <laughs> uh, but on the other hand he had an innate way uh, in the same way that that um paul smith does that george martin did of, of talking to you and making you feel that you are the most important person in the room. And he was, he loved a dirty joke and he was, he could be, he could be quite laddie when, when he chose to be. But two stories, he, what, what was David Bowie like? When he did the extraordinary black and white tour, uh, the Isola tour, I think it was 78, 79, very, very um, sort of Germanic um, uh, staging. And the set was so long, uh, that it had an interval and what would happen during the interval and he, he was playing very dark versions of his current material and very dark version of his popular material and he would go into his dressing room and he would stand up and he'd put a foot on a sofa and he would watch television and what he would watch on television is, is VHS tapes of Coronation Street because <laughs> he wanted something he he wanted to to, to sort of um uh, 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 and sort of relax in a way that was using a completely different part of his brain. And he would he would watch this for 20 minutes and then go back on stage again. However, like all bold-faced names, he had a he had a huge ego. Um, he was enormous fun to be with, but I remember once going to New York, it was 1995, I think. He he was just about to release a not very good album called Earthling. It's the one where he appears on the cover with his back towards you and he's wearing an Alistair McQueen Union Jack frock coat. So we meet in this recording studio in Midtown Manhattan. And one of the last things you ever want to do as a journalist is be with the artist when the artist is playing you their new product. Because all you really have to do is sit there and find a variety of, of, of adjectives to describe how amazing this thing is, because in their mind, obviously, uh, they've never done anything better. 
uh, and this is the very peak of their creativity. So he starts off, he plays the first song and, it, and it's pretty good. Then I chip in with, God, that's incredible and wow, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I've got all these superlatives. And the second one, pretty much the same. Third one, but by sort of track four, the quality is beginning to dip. And I wasn't a young man at the time, but in my naivety, I actually really thought that he cared what I thought about this. And of course, I started being honest with him which didn't really go down so well. So by sort of track six, I'm going, well, it's all right, but it's not really as good as the one at the beginning, is it? And oh. of course, that, it's not what he wanted to hear. It's not what anyone wants to hear. All they want to hear is, wow, thank you. Mm. I mean, it's a bit like going backstage at a fashion show. Uh, and I've seen thousands of fashion shows. I've seen far too many fashion shows. And if something was a real stinker, and if these people were big advertisers, you had to go backstage afterwards and genuflux and basically find something to say. And the things that I found myself saying, you, you go, only you could have done that, <laughs> which I think is a perfectly reasonable thing, thing to say. Or you go up to them and you grasp both their hands and you say, you've done it again. These are brilliant, brilliant tips. And uh, your Paul Weller, uh, your the launch of your Paul Weller book on in the spring, <laughs> you can expect me to grasp both of your hands. But I want to talk about fashion in a minute, but I'm not going to let you get away without telling us a Paul Weller anecdote. I mean, what is he like? I would, I would love to meet Paul Weller. Paul Weller would absolutely loathe me. I stand for everything he absolutely hates. The great thing about Paul Weller is his his commitment to what he believes in. And also the fact that, unlike many people who have been around for a while, that he that he has tapped into something in the last seven or eight years, which is which is truly kind of extraordinary. But in the last eight years, maybe longer, Weller has produced some of his finest records. He's changed a lot. I mean, when we, we spent quite a lot of time together doing this book. And he was very forthcoming, perhaps unusually so. And the, and the process was fascinating and very, very enjoyable. Although I did say to him on many occasions, I used to interview you when, you know, back in the day in the 70s and 80s. And he said, was I difficult? And I said, yeah, you really, really <laughs> were. Um, you got a sense of humour. He, he has got a sense of humour. But, and I admire him for this, he has almost no interest in trying to ingratiate himself with people. And he's incredibly shy. He's like a lot of people who can initially come across as being quite terse. He's a very shy person. Fashion. Yes. So you created Men's Fashion Week. You uh, put Men's Fashion Week on the map. And as you said, you know, you, you've lived and breathed fashion for, for decades now because that was at the heart of GQ as well. Who are your favourite fashion designers? Well, you could ask that question about anyone in the creative arts or indeed any, any, any body full stop. They're the people who have a sense of self-deprecation about them, um, who understand that what they're doing is, is not rocket science. And that's, even, and that's even more rewarding when that person is truly, truly, truly talented. I think the two most important things I'd like to say about that is that the first thing is that London has a sense of regeneration. Uh, more so than any other fashion capital of the world. And London will forever regenerate because I think it's some, there's something in the water. If you're talking about uh, music or art or fashion, any kind of street culture, youth culture, pop culture, 
it, it, it's always about London. And that's one of the things that I, that I hope for, for when we come out of all this mess that we've been in the last couple of years. I think it'll be great for young people because I think there is a platform there for people to be discursive, to be angry, and also a vacuum. I remember five or six years ago when there was a huge exodus of young artists from London because they couldn't afford to live here anymore because the rents were so high and studio hire was so high. So they went off to Margate and Deal and Brighton and Hastings and, and places like that. But I think you're going to see a lot of people coming back into London because London has always been sort of fulcrum. It's the centre of young creativity. And that's always exciting. Uh, the second thing I'd like to say is that fashion's a business. I mean, I remember we used to have all these fashions at Downing Street. Uh, we, we would encourage whoever was the prime minister at the time to make a rallying speech during fashion week, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember uh, once when Cameron did it, uh, and Cameron made this speech saying, I don't know why I'm speaking. I mean, look at me. I'm just wearing a boring old suit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he wouldn't say that if it if it were a room for the people from the from the car industry and the fashion industry makes a lot more money than than the British car industry. So I think people still in politics have uh, they treat fashion in a, in a kind of uh, in a in a very patronizing way. But I totally agree with that. You know, I was proud to go to the Burberry fashion show because even though obviously, you know, politicians are very kind of nervous about all this stuff and they think oh this looks like a jolly it's not you're 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 at, an, at the showcase event for a great british company this was a kind of iconic cultural moment every year of you know what was where burberry thought fashion was going it was going to influence a whole raft of high street fashion and it was going to you know reaffirm the place of the importance of British fashion as, as an industry. But you've obviously seen in your period as a magazine editor, you've probably, you know, you started when, you know, you could fly business class to LA for a meeting, clothes in abundance to basically having to be quite careful with budgets. I mean, how have magazines changed in your time? Uh, I think all media has changed uh, and I think it's it continues to change. And I think that uh, the last two years have has sped up that process. However, I refuse to, to worry about it because I do actually think media is going to flourish. It just needs to, it, it, and it is flourishing in different ways. Delivery systems are changing, admittedly. There are, there will soon be no newspapers in the world. Um, but that's, that, that doesn't matter because we will be paying for our news in other ways. Things change. Apart from the FT weekend, we must save the physical FT <laughs> I agree. I think people have been saying there are going to be no newspapers for years, and somehow, somehow they're still there. I, I love having real newspapers. Well, I read, I read as much as I've ever done, uh, perhaps more, um, but I pr re pretty much read all of it um on a on an electronic device but i'm as informed as i've ever ever was perhaps more i certainly pay for most things uh, i consume i'm a i'm a big subscriber of many many publications and lots of people are look charlotte wants to end this podcast i think we could go on for hours but she wants to ask about dave bennett i do i do want to ask about dave bennett because this is the show you're curating now tell us all about him because his story which i read about in the times which you pointed me to dylan is absolutely fascinating well we all think that social photography is is easy and kind of pedestrian and prosaic because everyone has a mobile telephone now and we all take pictures of each other but actually it is an art and Dave has been doing it for a very long time 
and he is very adept at getting the shot. Uh, and um, the title of the show was taken from Don McCullen, who it was something that he said to to Dave uh, when Dave used to be a news photographer, but to be a successful journalist or to be a successful photographer I think at some point you need to have worked for a newspaper and he spent many years working for newspapers in news before he moved into entertainment and celebrity and I, I do think that gives him an edge and also he's um you know he's, he spent a lot of his childhood uh, abroad in Sri Lanka uh, he has Sri Lankan heritage I think anyone who isn't born in London with raised in L London looks at London in a particular way. I know I did coming from, uh, you know, the various places I came from. I think you always do. London has a sort of aura around it for people who weren't born there. And I think you have a sort of respect for the city that maybe you don't have if you're born there. But anyway, he's a great photographer. And I think that um, he has taken some terrific pictures and I hope he has enormous success with it. And it was a, a real joy to help him curate it. No, I think it's great. I think um, these guys, uh, to be serious for a moment, you know, they are cultural curators and um, their kind of working lifespan spans many, many decades. Uh, you know, I follow Richard Young on Instagram and him posting pictures from, you know, the 70s and 80s of, of Mick Jagger and so on. It's it's a wonderful way to see how kind of world of entertainment and celebrity has developed. And they are the trusted. They're a bit like the sort of maitre d' of a great restaurant. They're trusted by the people they're photographing. They are they are great social historians. And Richard Young started his career taking uh, party pictures for Ritz magazine. And I remember Bailey saying once to me that actually Richard uh, and Dave they are they are um, incredible social historians and are probably more important than most of their contemporary photographers who haven't done that because, as you say, they have created an extraordinary document of the changing times in our city. There's a story that I read in that Times article about Dave Bennett where there was some television person who said, this won't last, but these photographs will be here forever. Uh, well, it, it was Snowden who said that. He was being filmed or there was a film crew there. And I think he pointed at Dave and said, you know, these are the people who have got the real, the real deal. And it's true because their pictures, as, as Ed said, they, they sort of chart the social ebbs and flows of the, the urban existence for um, a certain sort of gilded set. And they are fascinating. And as we uh, progress and as we um, move on, archive particularly archive of this fascinating sort of 50 to 70 post-war period is going to become even more valuable. Uh, and while a lot of his, his, his mates and colleagues have had shows and books, Dave has not really received the uh, public acclaim that he perhaps should have done. So at the J.D. Mallet Gallery from next week, I've helped create a show of his pictures uh, and a truly wonderful thing it is and a truly wonderful thing he is. Can you just tell us before you go a bit about your musical with Jimmy Webb? I allow myself a day off during the week. And on that day, I am uh, writing the book for a musical with a songwriter a friend of mine called Guy Fletcher. Um, uh, Guy is um, uh, wrote songs for Elvis, for Aretha Franklin. Uh, for Cliff wow, Richards, how old is Guy Fletcher? 160? Uh, uh, he is 74. Um <laughs> And he, 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 he steered the PRS for a number of years. Much acclaimed man. 
um, wrote for the Hollids, uh, and is the only songwriter to have a song in the Jersey Boys that wasn't written by Bob Gaudio. He wrote Fallen Angel. Um, and we are working together, um, writing the book for a musical um, based on the songs of Jimmy Webb, the great man who wrote Wichita Lion Man, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, MacArthur Park, Up, Up and Away, Didn't We, The Highwaymen, etc., etc., etc. I suppose in some respects it's a jukebox musical, but it's also a celebration of a great auteur's work. And we are not plonking these songs into something like Mamma Mia or Moulin Rouge, which are stories that um, have a collection of songs within them. We are telling the story of Jimmy Webb's life in the narrative. So they're two very different things. Is it going to be a bit like Tina, the musical, which I thought was terrific, actually, which is about her life, but with her songs slotted into it? Yeah, is it, is it, yeah. Um, like that... Tina or the or the Carol King um, oh, yeah, yeah. musical or the the Kinks musical Sunny Afternoon was a masterpiece. Uh, and then you have things like Motown, which are very different. You have Girl from the North Country, which, again, was a sort of construct around Bob Dylan's songs. I mean, I'm under no illusion how, how problematic and how difficult it is to get a new musical into the West End uh, post-COVID. However, we are working with an extraordinary canon of classic songs. I think it's going to be a rip-roaring success. And, you know, at your age, Dylan, you're entitled to a bit of fun. <laughs> Touche. Well, thank you so much, Dylan. That's absolutely a riot. Thank you very, very much indeed. <laughs> she said carefully. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, have uh, have a good day, both of you. Take care. Cheerio. Bye bye. Well, that was a lot of fun chatting to Dylan James. As you can probably work out, he is a very old friend and a great and iconic icon but anyway that's all we've got time for this week and don't forget the latest edition of country and townhouse is out now at selected newsstands and of course at waitrose our favorite supermarket as well as online of course along with the 2022 edition of great british brands we can be found at countryandtownhouse.co.uk where you'll also find our sister podcast house guest with all the latest news on the world of interiors from Carol Annette and just add forward slash newsletter to subscribe both to the weekly magazine newsletter and to the great British brands monthly one we love your feedback so please keep it coming to charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk goodbye goodbye <laughs>